You're listening to Teach, Think, Treat, a Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast. This podcast is for healthcare professionals and students about teaching and learning in a busy clinical setting. Whilst our setting is a tertiary paediatric hospital, our experiences and challenges are shared by many professionals and students in other clinical environments. Hello, my name is Steve Lacey and I'm the Allied Health Education Fellow in the RCH Education Hub. I also work as a tutor radiographer in the hospital's medical imaging department. So one of our recent podcasts was a discussion with Kathy Croc on the topic of patient-centered care. It was such a great discussion, which really centered on how we communicate with each other as a team and how we can be kind to one another. And this is how patient-centered care starts, taking care of each other. Well, in this second episode on our series into patient-centered care, we are now going to shift our focus towards how we care for and communicate with the patients and their families. And I'm joining this discussion with Dr. Amanda Stock. Amanda is one of the consultant emergency physicians at RCH and is a long-time colleague of mine. And I have to say, she's one of those doctors that always puts a smile on your face, no matter how stressed you are. And it's an absolute pleasure to be speaking with her today. So welcome, Amanda. Thanks, Steve. I'm also welcomed by Marnie Pascoe. So Marnie has arguably the longest title in the hospital, which is Clinical Nurse Consultant Procedural Pain Management. Uh, but I just like to call her the comfort kids girl. Welcome, Marnie. Thanks, Steve. So I just want to start this discussion with a bit of a scenario, right? Mm. So a colleague of yours, whether it's a registrar, fellow, another consultant, a nurse, whoever, they go into a room for a consultation with a patient. After 15 minutes, they return and want you to go into the room to talk to the patient and family. But before you go in, their final words to you are, be careful. They're difficult parents. Yeah, I think for me, Steve, that word difficult, it's a little bit triggering for me because as Kathy mentioned in the last podcast, if you go in with a set idea of how a parent is going to behave or be with you, then I think it stops us from being open and understanding. I'm hearing that that family and the interaction is making them uncomfortable. Yeah. And that's something I think that we don't really discuss when we're training. Transference. So how does an interaction make you as a practitioner feel? The lead on for that is counter-transference. So if I'm feeling like my back's against the wall and I'm getting negative vibes from this family, how do I feel and how does that reflect back to them? So as soon as I hear difficult, I am rephrasing in my head, my colleagues are finding the interaction challenging. You've already had a a preconceived idea as what this patient's actually, or what this parent's actually going to be like. Exactly. Exactly. What, what, What kind of comes up for you when you hear that word? For me, I really expect families to be anxious. Mm. I expect them to not be difficult, but I expect them to be anxious. Their child is unwell. Mm. They're probably hungry. They've had whatever's going on in their life is going on in their life. Mm. You know, we all have things that are going on. They Mm. might not be having their best day already. All of those things. And they're worried for their child. So I expect their resilience to be low. I expect them probably not to have access to their ideal coping strategies right at that moment. Um, I actually find it a little bit more disconcerting when the the families are really, really calm. Yeah. How do we then approach 
patients and or, or approach parents knowing that this is actually happening, knowing that they have that underlying level of anxiety and that, as you suggest, their coping mechanism isn't going to be what they would normally do. How do we then approach that situation when you're talking to your patients? It's funny, you know, there's this concept of kind of like bringing your best self to work all the time. And sometimes we can't always bring our best self to work and that's, I think, okay. So I think it's just recognizing maybe where you're at on the day. So some days we're like Teflon where everything just rolls off us or we're feeling really strong and capable and we can go in and we can meet that family where they are. But there are other days where maybe there's other things going on in our life and maybe we're a bit more porous. So I think the first step before we engage with who's coping is maybe not at their best is understanding where we are at. And Kathy really spoke to that in the last session. So yeah. where, where are you at yourself? Then I think it's about going in with as much as possible an open, curious mind. There are really simple things, Steve, and I think Marnie would probably do it intuitively, that can really get parents feeling calmer and safer. I'll always thank them for being here at the hospital. And for me, it's in the emergency department because a lot of parents have guilt about being here. And I also off, will often apologize for the wait. Can, can I just interrupt yeah, you there? Is, yeah, you this, got, yeah, this is a very interesting mm. um, point because I try to, to do this as well with the staff that we have in, in imaging mm. is about the apology for waiting. Mm. It's not your fault, Amanda, that mm. the patient's have had to wait. Yes, yes, yes. And so apologising, what are you actually apologising for? Are you apologising that they're waiting or are you apologising that you have made them wait? Yeah. What I do, I like to turn that around a lot. Mm. And and I've noticed a lot about the way that what you get as far as a reception from the parent at mm. the time is when you go out there and you say, thank you for waiting. Ah, uh, That's really nice. That's a sort of like if a reframe. Say, because if you yeah. say apologise, if you say, I, I'm sorry, I'm sorry for the wait, there's that negative connotation already and suddenly they outpour, oh, this is like, you know, I've been waiting here for, for an hour and I also had to wait up in clinic for an hour mm. and, and stuff like that. I've been genuinely been in mm. situations where I have actually said, thank you for waiting and the parents kind of gone, oh, that, oh that's okay. That's such a And it's such nice, a different way yeah. of looking at it. Yeah, that's a real change in the way I'm thinking. I often apologise for the wait on behalf of the department because I appreciate that waiting in the emergency department for three or four hours is really difficult. It's not ideal. I guess the first thing I do is I thank them for coming. Yeah. And then I feel like a lot of the time the defence kind of comes down and they realise that I want to be there and I want to look after their child. Mm -hmm. The next thing that I will do is I will use the child's name as often as I can. So I will always say hello to the child, no matter how old they are. Yeah. And so if the child's name is Charlie, I'll be like, hello, Charlie, it's lovely to meet you. I'm going to talk to your mum and dad now, depending on the age. And then I will continue using the child's name at every opportunity that I can. So it's not like he needs an x-ray or he needs blood tests. Charlie needs an x-ray. Charlie needs blood tests. Yeah. What does that do? It means that I feel like the family are then understanding that I am with, their, with them and I'm fully focused 
on their child. Yeah. They're not just another patient. Correct. Yeah. And then I think that makes them feel safer, I think. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Our natural instinct when someone has told us already that this situation is going to be difficult, Mm. we want to avoid it. Yeah. And we want to shut it down. But that will make it worse because that family, they need something from us. So I might say something like, I'm really looking forward to working with you to see what we can do to Mm. make this situation better. Um, And I'm really interested to hear what your ideas are and for you to tell me what's worked well in the past and what hasn't worked so well. A bit of confidence and optimism um, Mm. rather than going in there stealing yourself for what you know, is likely to be really uncomfortable. Yeah. Coming in with a bit of confidence and optimism and saying, I'm really looking forward to working this through with you because it can be so rewarding. Yeah. If we can get past our own anxieties, which are innately telling us to flee from this situation, to freeze and say nothing or to fight. We've got to kind of override those instincts and, um, be regulated, but be positive. Yeah. I think as well, going, going into a situation confidently as well, and you're, you're generating that confidence towards the families, they will have more confidence in you that you will actually do the job that is required of mm. you and that, and that you will actually do it well, I think, more than anything else. If you go in there and you're a little bit, you're a little bit anxious yourself and you're kind of showing that, then they might just be like, does this person actually know what they're doing? Mm. I have this thing, Steve, where I feel like parents um, who are feeling concerned and worried about their child um, are a little bit, I don't don't mean this in any negative way, a little bit like dogs. You know how like dogs sniff fear? Yeah. And so parents will sniff the fear of the health practitioners that are looking after their child. Mm. They'll just sniff it out. It is tricky, isn't it? Because a lot of the time we're doing things that are like, quite like challenging, but in a sense, we have, have to work with how we kind of calm our own concerns before we go into the family. And I really like your, your stop technique. You reckon you could tell us about yeah, that? Yeah, what's I the stop like technique? Yeah, yeah. Marnie taught it to me this morning. So yeah. often when, um, I don't find it particularly helpful when parents are anxious and heightened to address that anxiety, because I think we all know if we are feeling anxious and that's a normal emotion, it's not an accusation, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's normal to feel anxiety, it's helpful. We discussed this this morning. It's often the emotional feeling that has actually brought that patient in. Mm. You know, the family, that anxious feeling that something is wrong is actually what's um, spurred them on to seek the treatment mm. that they need. So it's a helpful emotion to have. Sometimes our coping strategies to deal with that anxiety aren't well developed. And that can be, you know, past experiences, your home environment, you didn't learn these fantastic coping strategies, but we're not going to fix that right there in that moment when they are anxious. And in my experience, addressing, 
you know, saying to the family that they're anxious is not particularly helpful. It can feel like an accusation. Yeah. It can feel like you're telling them that they're not a good parent, mm. that they're not yeah. doing right by their child, which is the opposite actually usually of what they're trying to do. They're trying to do right by their their child and they're anxious about that. I find that in that moment the best that we can do is co-regulate by being well-regulated ourselves yep. um, and role model good coping. But sometimes what I will try to do is talk to the parents through the child. So I might come in and talk, say to the child, hey, I've just learnt this really cool strategy. I tried it out the other day. I really liked it. Would you mind if I taught it to you? Um, kids nearly always say yes. Yeah, sure. And so this is the technique that I often use. And it's called the stop technique. So there's the S for stop, yep. the T for take a breath, the O for observe three things, which I think is really manageable, and the P, which is proceed. It's really, really quick, but it's a great circuit breaker. Yeah. But what I find is I'm teaching the child, but the parent is there. And a lot of the times I'll go back and the parent will say, hey, I use that technique. It's really, uh, really good. So obviously speaking to the child, but the parent is there and I'm offering them that technique yeah. as well. It does sound a little bit like a parenting technique for their own children when the children mm. are chucking a tantrum or something like that too. So, yeah. Yeah. So I think in the moment offering techniques to the child is probably... Mm where I go. On the positive side of things, I mean, the bad news is that there's not a great deal that you can do about the fact that this parent maybe has suboptimal coping strategies. Mm. You know, that's, that's who they are. That's, that's what they've learned from their life. They may have had medical trauma themselves. Mm. Yeah. We don't know, do we? We yeah. don't know. But the good news is, is that there are techniques that we can use outside of that very stressful time to help make things better in the future. Yeah. So things like play and not just with the child but with the parent too. Mm -hmm. Joint attention it's called. So doing something together and then working through that. So maybe playing Jenga together, yeah. building rapport, preparation. Preparation is huge. Often the evidence bears this out. Information reduces parents' anxiety. Yeah. It takes time, questions, but information nearly always reduces anxiety, whether that be in the form of counselling, videos, brochures, Q&A. Preparation in that way is very, very effective at reducing yeah. parent anxiety. There's a few other strategies as well, but also the evidence bears out that when the parent's anxiety is lower, the child's anxiety is lower. So it's a worthwhile investment. Mm. And it's cost effective yeah. because we reduce all these negative outcomes. I think in the long run, it's time effective mm. as well, particularly for your patients that are coming back for the treatment and, and things like that. And I appreciate that in an area such as emergency, mm. preparation is a very difficult thing to achieve. I had a patient that needed a chest x-ray mm. and the patient was two years old and she uh, was asleep. And the mum asked, to wake her up, said, can you just wake her up? We can just get the x-ray done. And so then, I, don't, I, think, I think she wanted, wanted to leave, but I yeah. think she 
the mother was a very reasonable person uh, anyway. The child was beyond hysterical. Because she'd just been woken up? I'm not sure whether it was that. I think it was that in in combination to the fact that she'd been woken up in a room that was different to where she'd gone to sleep. Yeah. She'd woken up in a room that she had never been in before where there was a lot of scenery around that she'd never seen Mm. before. There were people there that she'd never met before. She was to the point of, of hysteria that I decided to pull back and I said to the mother, I just said, let's take a break. Let's pop outside and have a chat. And so we did. And I said, you don't have to have this x-ray right now. Your daughter doesn't have to have this x-ray today because we're just doing a staging one. We can do this at another time. We could probably do it at a time where she has been better prepared, where she's probably in a better frame of mind. And I went and I spoke to one of your colleagues, Amanda, mm. and, and I said, look, you, you know me, you know how long I've worked here for, and, and you will know that if I'm making a decision such as this, that I'm not happy to proceed with an x-ray, that it must be pretty bad. And she said, yeah, I agree. And I said, so let's just leave it for now and we can come back. And we, I sent the mother off and I said, here are all the details about how you prepare for an x-ray. We put her onto our Oki app that we yeah. have. Yeah. And, and we said, we'll, we'll organize a proper time when, when it's going to be a good time for her to, to come in. And the mum was incredibly thankful for the fact that we didn't have to put her through that. And I said, look, chances are you're going to come back for multiple visits. Let's not make it worse. Let's not make it bad for the first visit because it's only going to make it worse for the, for the rest of them. So it was a great outcome in the end. That's so great. And it just talks to flexibility, doesn't it? Mm. Um, flexibility in the way we work with each other. And I guess then it means that we need to be able to have those honest discussions with our colleagues, which sort of comes back to kindness to each other, Mm -hmm. doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. That enables you to do that. I was thinking about something that Marnie said to me this morning, Steve, around healthcare professionals finding it tricky to work with parents that have poor coping styles and it's that thing that you brought up, why do I need to like help the parent if really I'm wanting to help the child and the child is my main focus? And it made me think about some of the things that we've been talking about before about this triad that we have and a dyad. So, you know, um, there's the, the parent, the child and the health practitioner and we're a triad and then there's the dyad, which is the, the parent and the child. and the health practitioner can't really work with the child unless we're working with the parent as well. And so I think there's, there needs to be a recognition that, yes, some parents are less resourced than we would potentially like them to be. Sometimes all you want is a parent just to get on board and to really like assist their child in getting through a procedure but they just don't have the capacity to do that. And I'll just tell you really briefly, like last week, it was kind of 12.30 at night. I was meant to have finished an hour and a half or half an hour beforehand. I had to be back at work like at 8.30 the next morning. And I had this boy who had a fracture of his forearm and he needed ketamine to have it reduced, which is an anaesthetic. He was very, very distressed and he was very worried that he wouldn't wake up. And I was really trying to just gently explain the process. But his mother was so worried and 
what she was doing is just asking, but will he, how long will he be asleep for? And when will he wake up? And so her words and her distress was counterproductive to what I was doing. So he couldn't really hear me. And I actually felt really angry towards her because I just was like, I'm really tired. I just want to get this done. Mm. And part of it, I think, was I I had to recognize my frustration and just be really careful that it didn't leak out to my interaction with her. And what I did in the end was I just spoke of my frustration to the nurse I was working with, who kind of looked at me quizzically because most of the time I tend to not be frustrated by parents. But once I'd expressed it away from the family, I then was actually able to come in and be patient with the family. Yeah. So I think it's kind of like, it's actually okay to feel frustrated, but in a sense, what we probably need to be able to think about is expressing that frustration maybe away from the family and the parent, if that makes sense. There's never going to be anything positive coming out of expressing your frustration in front of a parent. Yeah. It's not going to make the parent listen to you anymore by doing that. Yeah, but yet it happens so often. It does. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we think of that as our relationship and the care that we give to the child, but it doesn't really uh, incorporate the care that we give to the parent. Um, And we don't even think necessarily of that as our role, Mm. but actually in a children's hospital it is because we now know how the parent copes influences how the child copes. Um, And if we want to give good care to the child, we need to give good care to the parent as well. Reframing our thinking that we're giving good care to the parent and the child will help us to know that we're giving good care to the child. Mm. Yeah. Sorry, that was lots of words. And I've, I've said it before as well that... I always consider working in paediatrics being like you have two patients in the room. Yeah. Your parent is one of the patients that you've got in your room. And so you shouldn't treat them any differently than you would a patient in terms of the way you interact with them. Amanda, you've spoken before about something called the heart sink Mm -hmm. patient. Mm -hmm. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah. So the heart sink patient, at least in the emergency department, is brief information that the family have given the triage nurses that literally makes your heart sink. So it might be something like um, chronic abdominal pain for two years, has seen multiple specialists and is seeking a second opinion, is booked for theatre at another hospital, is not happy with plan for theatre, seeking another opinion. It could be something like long-standing behavioural issues has been aggressive towards siblings, recent notification to the Department of Human Services, mother not coping. These are patients, I think, where presenting problems are so big and have been there maybe for such a long time that one almost knows from the outset that we may not ever be able to meet the family's expectations. And so that's the heart sink because most doctors and nurses want to be able to help a family. And so what happens, Steve, is that often those are the patients that are not clicked on by doctors and they just sit there. And if you're running the floor, you might notice that no one's picking them up because no one wants to see them. Mm. What I think happens is, is that 
doctors and nurses can go into the room already with a preconception that it's going to be all heart sink in inverted commas, just like the difficult parents that we spoke about right at the beginning. And so what I encourage staff to do is to first acknowledge that it's heart sink because we wouldn't be normal if it didn't make us feel a little bit confronted because they're such huge problems, aren't they? Yeah. You know, how do we, how do we deal with them? So to acknowledge that's going to be difficult and then in the most possible way to go in with an open palate and to go in with a genuine um, desire to listen and to hear the family. And sometimes that's actually all we can do is just genuinely listen yeah. and also understand that we are probably not going to be able to meet the expectations of that family. I can see why you call it the heart sink then, mm. to think that they are going to walk out relatively dissatisfied, I guess, aren't they? Yeah. In that sense. If you've got a, a, an eight-year-old who's had long-standing difficulties attending school, aggression, you know, with, with poor resources in the community, that family and child are coming to you with the whole book of their life that we haven't read all the chapters of. And we're maybe seeing them just for maybe page 39, paragraph one. And so how can we possibly be privy to the rest of the chapters that have come before it? So like it's taking away the pressure a little bit as a health practitioner just to solve it all. Mm. So, so often I have junior staff that feel completely defeated by these consultations and feel like they just haven't done a good job. And, and then they get really morally distressed and really downcast. And I think it's important then to understand we can only do so much in this book that is this family's kind of life and prior experience. Yeah. But understanding that listening is has evidence, mm. you know, yeah. it's not fluffy, mm. like human connection is real. It's therapeutic. And we were talking actually, I was telling Marnie about, and I can't remember the word in Maori, but in Maori there's a particular word for human connection. Yeah. And I guess that's, I think, what we're talking about, isn't it? When we talk about authentic listening, but I encourage staff to actually sit down. And I think there's lots of evidence about that, that if your um, health practitioner is actually sitting, families perceive that you've actually spent a longer period of time with them. So it's about sitting down so that they don't feel like you're about to kind of walk out the door. Mm. That's a really interesting mm. concept. Yeah. Because mm. that's probably what they're really fearful of. Yeah. Fearful that you're, they're going to have all these questions and they're feeling really worried and anxious and I really need all these questions answered and they're fearful that you're going to run out the door before they've had their opportunity to allay their fears. Yeah, and then they've got that fear, then their brain is basically in a pattern of I may not be able to ask all my questions, I may not be able to have my concerns addressed and then they're actually not listening to what you're saying. And they're not asking the questions either, yeah. actually. Yeah. And I think even sitting down on a, on a physical level, let's say you walk into the room mm. and everyone's standing up and you decide to go sit down, it will encourage others to sit down and there is less chance of being a height differential between one parent and it's like, Amanda, I'm, I'll admit mm. here, you're not the tallest person in the world. Mm. And of None course of you come, you really come no, exactly. You come across, you'll come <laughs> yeah. across, you'll come across parents that are quite tall, mm. but if you sit down and they sit down, chances are that that height differential from when you were standing is going to be a lot less. Yeah. And so you've already reached that eye level with 
the parent itself and that it's like it then becomes a bit of a, the discussion becomes an even kind of playing field at the same so time true. as well. So, yeah. um, but it, yeah, I really like that, that analogy of the, the sitting down and it's not an easy thing to do in an x-ray department, but yeah, you can't sit down. Can you? Yeah. Well, we can, we just don't really get much work done no. if we do. Yeah. And then also, um, what's the other thing about listening is a bit tricky when you've got competing demands. But if I really feel that I need to not be interrupted, I'll often divert my phone so that I'm not getting calls all the time. But that's that's challenging because sometimes that's you can't do that. That's why I can never get hold of you in the department. Yeah, no, I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. diverted. Yeah. <laughs> it's fascinating. One of the things that I noticed so well, um, one of our senior nurses is very, very good at de-escalating patients who've got mental health concerns. And what I notice is, is that she doesn't get interrupted and she's because she's not clinically on the floor. So she'll often come off the floor because she might know the patient. She'll sit with them, she'll sit down and she'll give her undivided attention to the patient. And I'll often see her from, you know, outside the room and she's giving the patient her full attention. It took me a while to work out why she's so effective and it's because they have her undivided attention. Yeah. And, and I guess we're talking about a different set of patients now. You know, uh, uh, unfortunately, we've had an increase in a lot of very distressed teenagers and come to the emergency department um, because um, they're exhibiting behaviours at risk or sometimes it's because that's a safe place for them. But her ability to de-escalate them is around her giving that patient her full attention. What we can try and do is replicate that when we are busy and when we are going to get interrupted by explaining. So if we say, I'm, I need to go and do this other thing right now, I'll come back to you. If you feel as though I have forgotten you, please press the buzzer, for example, yeah. or please come and get me. You're counteracting that fear that you're trying to avoid them yeah, yeah. by saying, I want you to come to me. And what I often find is then they become less anxious that you're not going to meet their needs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You talked a little bit uh, before as well, Marnie, about anxious and about, about the anxious parent. And I, I do want to kind of go through this a little bit in, in more detail. Amanda, you wanted to talk about mm. the anxious parent. Mm. Yeah. So uh, another word that's a bit triggering for me. I love the way that the word triggering has become like a word of the times, you know, <laughs> like it's very much in the vernacular of young people, isn't it? Yeah. It's our job as parents to be on the lookout for our children. And I encourage people to maybe use a different word to anxious. And I really like concerned. So a parent could be concerned about their child's rash or concerned about the child's procedure. And I feel like the word concerned is less judgmental. Absolutely. Because anxious almost feels like you're a bit over the top, you know, you're a bit over the top. Well, you've done something wrong. Yeah. 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 So I had this mum last night of a, ch- of a young child who has complex medical needs and um, has been in hospital a lot, has had multiple surgeries. And last night she said to me, I'm a bit anxious about him deteriorating and I said, could I just like maybe pause on that and say that you have every reason to feel concerned about his deterioration because 
he's done that in the past. Yeah. So she said, I feel like I second guess myself. I said, well, I don't think you're second guessing yourself. When parents hear that they're anxious or they hear from their partner that they're anxious, it's almost like dismissive. And I feel like it stops them from having confidence in their ability as a parent to understand and know their child. Yeah. But I feel like parents over the last decade have lost confidence in their own parenting understanding of their child and their own gut feeling. And part of that I think is social media. That's another whole story. Yeah. Yeah. So you want to give the parent that confidence and to, to use words like anxious, I feel is judging them. Let's say a, a registrar comes to you mm. and says, this parent is, is being anxious that their child may be deteriorating versus them saying, this parent is concerned that, the parent, that their mm. child may be deteriorating. Do you think that might be a different way of looking at it? What we know, unfortunately, from a couple of, you know, like the, the terrible child that passed away last year in, in Perth, is that the parents felt that their needs weren't being addressed. As soon as we use the word anxious, I feel like that's code for these parents are worrying unnecessarily about their child. That's what comes across to me. Yeah. 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 What about you? Oh, no, I totally agree with you. You know, I'll often say to the family, you know, I can see how much you love your child, done it, amazing job you've gotten them into the right place at the right time so they can get the treatment that they need mm. yeah you've advocated for your child really really strongly because that's their job because and that mm. is your job and, um, and in amanda's case coming in and saying thank you for being concerned enough to bring your child mm. into hospital yeah. yeah and you can see that they just relax because yeah. part of their worry is that they're bothering people or that they're coming across in a certain way. They can perceive that their particular style of coping is not actually going down very well with the people around them. Mm. But if you can reassure them that I'm looking past all of that and I'm seeing that you've done the right thing by your child and how much you care for them, you can reassure them what your job is, my job is too, dot, 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 whatever it is, mm. yeah. and I'm going to listen to you and I'll often talk to the child as well and I'll say something along the lines of, aren't you lucky that you've got this amazing person in your corner, Yes. yes. this fierce person yeah. who is on your side? You yeah. are a lucky kid. And I tell you what, it's the, it's the one thing that I've done in the past that has brought the shoulders of that parent right down and opened them up to future possibilities. Because they, they want to be recognised for being concerned mm, as well. Not and that, judged. And, you, you, mm. and that's the thing. You're, you're not only helping them as a result of them being concerned, you're recognising that concern. And if they know that they've been recognised as that con from, that they're concerned, they're more likely to open up because they'll be like, this person actually knows that. They get me. They understand me. Yeah. It's important to recognise that the parent's coping style is not going to be new to their child. Their mm. child will have seen this all throughout their life when they've had a bingle in their car or they were late for school and the parent was trying to get them off to school on time, <sighs> trying feeling. to brush their hair. Mm. 
whatever the coping style that parent has, the child, that's normal for them. Yeah. It might not be normal for us, but it's normal for the child. They're not going to see that as particularly unusual. In fact, if that parent miraculously in one second developed perfect coping style, perfect in inverted commas, the child would probably be really nervous because they'd be like, what's going on here? Like something must be terribly wrong. Yeah. So it's uncomfortable for us, but it's probably less uncomfortable for the child. It's a very helpful thing to think about and something that I actually hadn't really considered money at all. I really like your focus on praise. I make a point to teach our staff to praise parents for the things that they're doing well because unless we point it out to them, they don't realise. I feel like what we're trying to do with every interaction that we have with a parent and their child is to increase that parent's confidence in their own parenting ability. And so when, you know, you have a parent bring in a child who's got asthma, who noticed that they were breathing fast and that their tummy was moving in and out, it's well done. That's exactly what we look for. You notice the things that we look for. Or during a procedure, parents will often instinctively do things to support their child. And sometimes I find that unless we tell them to keep doing that and we say, actually, that's perfect, they don't know whether to continue or not because, like, no one said anything. So, you know, I had this um, very distressed boy on the weekend and the mother was just counting beautifully with him. And I just said to her, keep counting. It's perfect. And so she just kept counting and she kept counting really calmly and then, and then slowly her, her child calmed. We, we talk a lot about one voice uh, in procedures. Often it's the parent's voice, but unless we tell them that it's their voice and that they're doing a great job, they, they don't know to continue. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Allocating roles is very powerful um, because the parents can be unsure, what is my yeah. role in this situation? Should I be doing this mm. thing? They might do some things unconsciously, and if we can point them out and praise them for doing yeah. that, then they know to, that's a thing that I can do again mm. that will be really, really helpful. Amanda, Marnie, thank you so much for this discussion. It has been an absolute pleasure to speak with you both. It's actually been quite a very heavy topic, to be honest, mm. but it is good to dissect all this stuff, I think, anyway. You're both really, really passionate about it, and that's honestly why we got you onto the, onto the show and the series. Not only will these points make the patients and their families feel a bit better about the care they've received, but they're probably likely to make your work so much easier because they're going to cooperate with you. Hmm, would hope so. Yeah. Thanks, Steve. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to Teach, Think, Treat, part of the Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast series. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, check out our other podcast show, Conversation with the Experts where professionals from the Melbourne Children's Campus provide advice and insights, tips and tricks, and discuss latest research findings on a range of topics.